This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. Welcome to the human side of healthcare. We're delighted you're with us today. You know, today we commemorate 21 years since that tragic 9-11. People had anxiety, stress. Today, we're dealing with inflation. We're dealing with a lot of things that are impacting our lives, creating stress and anxiety. We're going to be talking with Dr. Dante Burgos from Medical City McKinney, talking to us about how we deal and cope with these issues. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thrilled to be here. You know, I referenced 21 years ago, this nation went through a tragedy of 9-11. Today, it's different, but we are dealing with polarity. We're dealing with high interest rates, or at least higher than they've been, inflation, job security, and of course, the pandemic and some of the lasting effects of the pandemic. How do we deal with all of these different things today, but it still produces stress and anxiety? Wow, how much time do we have? <laughs> there is a, there's a lot in that uh, question. And, uh, you know, in, in, in my field, I think we, we try to get folks centered on, you know, the things we can control versus the things that we cannot. And unfortunately, right now, there are a few things out there that we cannot control. And there's this looming fear that a recession is coming, which often that translates to, you know, job instability and possibly losing one's job. And it's tough because those are variables that are not really within our purview to be able to control. Um, I, I will say that it's always a good idea to reach out to what resources are available, whether, whether it's governmental resources, often the HR department in your own, you know, with your own employer can help you with getting um, assistance um, financially and otherwise. Your own physicians can often help you reach out to, you know, if it's, you know, a food issue or some other ways to get relief for paying some bills, um, you know, in this very hot Texas weather that we're in. So try to focus on the things that you can control, knowing that you've got resources there, uh, you know, that are available, available to kind of get us through this really tough patch that we're in. And then, of course, the bigger issue is how do you keep doing the things that are so crucial to take care of yourself and, uh, you know, the things like maintaining your nutrition, maintaining your sleep patterns, uh, exercise, routines that we used to do, hopefully, uh, pre-COVID and how to kind of re-engage in those strategies so that you can then make other sometimes more difficult decisions to, to kind of get through these difficult times. You know, that's some great advice. And if you have family members or even friends or co-workers, when are the warning signs there that this may not be normal stress and something a little more serious? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think that uh, the biggest thing here that we have to focus on is what is what I call situational stress and then what represents more of more serious symptoms asserting themselves. So everyone can have, you know, a restless night of sleep. Everyone can feel 
like they've got the blahs and they have no energy. But when you start seeing what we call vegetative signs of depression, where now you're, you're in a bad sleep pattern uh, and you're either not eating or eating too much or you're starting to have cognitive distortions and thought patterns of hopelessness about the future and it's starting to get dark even even to where that hopelessness can shift into what we call passive suicidality why why wake up uh, everyone would be better off without me those are huge warning flags that we may have a depressive episode that is now starting to get a foothold of course that's a moment to look back at wow have i had these issues before and and to go ahead and get the necessary care whether it's medical care or counseling to, to really get on top of uh, on top of those symptoms. Remember, COVID has been very bad in terms of escalating the amount of substance use that has taken place as well. So we get into a pattern of unhealthy self-medicating with alcohol or other substances, and that only compounds the situation. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and his his adolescent daughter was exhibiting some signs and went to the physician, primary care physician, and to get a referral for mental health was going to take 90 days. Are there any key insights you can give our listeners on maybe sometimes how they can get treatment sooner? Well, you know, the psychiatric and, uh, and counseling profession has tried to really rally to, to that extreme concern. Uh, and uh, thankfully, the government has made it very easy for us to be able to access telehealth, including telepsych services now. And so that may be a little bit of a drawback for some folks who like to do the in-person, uh, you know, interview and evaluation. But if it's emergent, you can certainly look at accessing those resources, even through one's own insurance products, including Medicaid and Medicare, uh, where you can get in with a telehealth provider and make an early intervention to really kind of nip things in the bud and start getting things pointed back in the right direction. How serious is bullying impacting our children today? Well, bullying has always been a very serious problem. It certainly has been magnified. With the shift to you know to in-home virtual uh, learning and and almost almost continuous access to the internet, uh, unfortunately that that modality has been an area where bullying has really asserted itself. And so families, you know, they're already struggling with child care challenges to begin with, and and you know, you've got kids at home sometimes oftentimes alone and unsupervised, and that really sets itself up for a lot of bullying to take place. Dr. Burgos, sometimes for kids, these things and bullying can turn into self-injury. That's just a huge, loud cry for help, isn't it? Yes, the answer is, uh, is an obvious yes. Uh, self-injurious behavior or cutting behavior, uh, which uh, unfortunately is becoming increasingly more common in adolescence, is a very loud warning sign uh, that, that you know our, our young folks are not coping well. And so that would most definitely be the time to reach out to whether it's your, you, it begins with your primary care physician or you go uh, to a, you know a crisis line where a, a lot of resources can be given uh, locally. To, you know, to direct to the appropriate therapist or, or mental health professional to evaluate that emergently. 
We're listening to Dr. Dante Burgos. He's the medical director at Medical City McKinney Behavioral Health Services. And, of course, we're talking in this anniversary of 9-11 about our mental health. Steve, we do have a new resource available that people can use their cell phone and dial up immediately. In fact, it's a number probably that they should put in their phones. You know, you're right, Thomas, and really it's 988. It's a suicide and crisis lifeline. You know, it started this, uh, I think it was June or July that it began. So it is relatively new, but it's something that's a resource. People can call, get help. And generally, in most areas, there's a crisis and suicide prevention lifeline that you can call in your locations. But 988 is easy to remember. Great resource. More from Dr. Dante Burgos from Medical City McKinney next on this special edition of the Human Side of Healthcare on 9-11. This is the Human Side of Healthcare, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. Welcome back to this 9-11 commemorative show. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Dante Burgos from Medical City McKinney. Steve? You know, Thomas and I interview different people, and we've, we've interviewed mental health professionals. In your opinion, how do we still continue to emphasize to people there is no stigma associated with seeking behavioral health treatment? Great, great question. I think that the stigma, for the most part, is diminishing rapidly. And thankfully, the science has helped in supporting that mindset. We realize now that depressive disorders and anxiety disorders and other mood disorders are a function of brain chemistry. And brain chemistry is affected, like every other uh, process in our body, is affected by genetics uh, and family history as well as stress. There are numerous elegant studies that talk about whether acute or persistent can even change our neurobiology. So it becomes very important to identify and then get that help, uh, whether it's as simple as removing the stressor or then targeting the after effects of that injury. You know, as we interview different physicians related to different illnesses, Uh, For example, certain types of breast cancer tend to potentially be genetic and hereditary. Are some behavioral health disorders, for example, if, if a parent is bipolar, is there an increased likelihood that the child may experience bipolar? Absolutely. That, that, that speaks to the genetic piece of this. And uh, if I can spend a minute on bipolar disorder, more than 85 to 90 percent of the time, a first mood episode will present as a depressive episode. And so uh, a lot of times folks will have uh, more classic signs of depression, you know, with the low energy and feelings of hopelessness and poor appetite and poor sleep. And they don't have any idea that they could experience a swing into manic symptomatology. And so that early family history, that that crucial key interview where you really dig in and find out all the necessary family history can give your provider a hint of what strategies might be needed uh, with that initial episode, whether it's just an antidepressant, whether it's just therapy, 
or an antidepressant and a mood stabilizer to prevent uh, the manic episode from occurring as well. I read a statistic uh, recently that roughly 60% of adolescents and adults experience some form of depression that goes untreated in their lifetime. Would you agree with that statistic? Absolutely. That's why the stigma has to go away, because major depression needs to be considered like hypertension, like asthma, like diabetes. This is a very common disorder. At some point in your lifetime, there will be a greater than 50% chance that you might have a depressive episode. And I'm not talking about sadness. I'm not talking about grief loss. We all go through that. But where those symptoms snowball into something that's much bigger, and if left untreated, it's debilitating. Another statistic, and I don't want to get bogged down in numbers, another statistic is that there's a high likelihood that about one in five people walking around right now are suffering from depression and or anxiety disorder. Now, the good news there, a lot of those folks are being treated, but a lot of them are not. And so it really does become about self-awareness, doing your own personal checklist, checking with those loved ones around you to make sure that you're not in trouble and that you're able to take care of yourself. Dr. Burgos, let's hone in on fear for a second. You know, there are so many things pressing down on people now. I mean, businesses got wiped out. Industries have been eliminated. People have watched their investments go down, wondering what's around the next corner. So how do we address these fears from things that we can't control? Yeah, and it's, it is quite challenging. Remember, fear is necessary. It is part of our way to survive, right? Uh, we've all heard the term fight or flight. Uh, the idea is that when we perceive a stress or a danger, fear or the fear response triggers, uh, you know, we get our Adrenaline flowing, our norepinephrine, and our our muscles tighten, our breathing changes, and then we respond to survive whatever that fear is. When you have a more persistent, almost chronic presence of stress, then that fear can turn into an anxiety disorder, and and then that becomes debilitating to you when all of a sudden your cardiac functioning or your uh, you start having musculoskeletal skeletal side effects or, or gastrointestinal side effects, then they become uh, their own problem that asserts itself. So back to those factors that we can and can't control, it really does become important to do all you can to take care of yourself as you reach out to those identified resources to help you mitigate as best as you can uh, the risk factors associated with high inflation and uh, and even impending unemployment. It's a scary thing. It should be a scary thing when you have to make decisions between do I buy my next bag of groceries or a medication. But that's why I want to emphasize that there are resources available and to reach out and, and get those resources uh, and try to mitigate those fears as best as we can. A topic that doesn't come up enough, spirituality. How do you advise on that in your practice? Well, spirituality, of course, is a very, very important factor. I think uh, whether you talk about faith or or belief in a higher power, there is is certainly a comfort and an anxiety reduction uh, that is significant 
when when there is a belief system that uh, and it, it can be cultural, it can be religious, it can be personal that um, that things are going to work out in the end because someone is looking out for you and uh, and uh, faith uh, and by the way there are studies to, to prove this as well uh, there, there's something about knowing that it will all be better in the end uh, that in and of itself is anxiety reducing and it allows us then to be more clear and concise in the decisions we have to make to take care of ourselves and our families. Do you think it's a triad of care? In other words, we obviously have to take care of our body and then your area of mental health, behavioral health, and then adding spirituality as an equal. That's the three-legged stool you just described. And it's not a stool without all three legs. Yeah. So absolutely, I agree with that. Seems like in some ways that spirituality has been challenged or tapped down as an equal leg of the stool. Yeah, I would agree with that. And uh, sometimes, unfortunately, when things get so stressful, we, we kind of lose our way in remembering of what got us here in the first place. And, uh, and that most definitely is the shorter leg that needs to be, <laughs> needs to be strengthened and shored up again. Well, and the easy leg is to turn to the escapisms that you talked about, drugs, alcohol, tobacco. These uses always go up during these kinds of times. But, I mean, the drugs, and it seems to be so prolific everywhere. Well, I, I could make a very strong argument that, you know, and of course I would because I'm a psychiatrist, right, that the psychiatric impact of COVID has been just as great, if not greater, than the actual disease itself. Uh, I do work at, as I mentioned, two psychiatric hospitals. Uh, I've had contact with a methadone clinic. Opiate addiction has gone through the roof. Uh, methamphetamines, as you mentioned, and alcoholism, which has you know, been around since the dawn of time. Uh, it has also spiked incredibly. And so um, self-medicating is, is not the answer, but you're right. It has in some ways become kind of the fill-in of that vacuum with the spirituality should help us in our healing process. Because then if you get addicted, now you've got a whole nother issue to deal with. Absolutely. Absolutely. Then you're, then you're treating two major disorders. Not that it can't be done, but, uh, but if it can be prevented in the first place, that's, of course, the way to go. So somebody is right at the precipice. They have access to drugs. They certainly have access to alcohol. They're looking at just numbing it up. But we still have their ear. What would you tell them to look alternatively? I would definitely tell them to reach out to someone that is a loved one, someone that is close to them. Uh, it can be a spouse, a sibling, parent, and to just say, hey, I'm in trouble here, and I need some help, and I need to know where to go before I start making bad decisions. And, and as I've mentioned above, uh, at the top of the hour, the resources are there. The phone numbers are there. Any hospital system, any provider, medical or otherwise, can help you and point you in the right direction to make the healthy decisions for your recovery. We have really enjoyed talking with Dr. Dante Burgos, the medical director at Medical City McKinney Behavioral Health Services, on this special 9-11 edition of The Human Side of Healthcare, which is always available on our podcast, The Human Side of Healthcare, on all the podcast players and on YouTube. When we come back, we're going to shine the light on our kids with Dr. Fuad Khan from Parkland Health. 
And before we go, it's that time of the year again. Please don't forget to get that flu shot. Welcome back to the human side of healthcare, where we explore how to take better care of your health so you can live a happier, healthier life. With DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome back. You know, we're continuing our discussion of stress and anxiety, and certainly this is the anniversary of 9 11, 21 years ago, a very tragic event. Today, our children are dealing with stress, anxiety. Adults are as well. So we want to focus today on how to deal with this in the current environment. And we're delighted to have back with us today Dr. Fuad Khan, who's the Chief of Integrated Behavioral Health at Parkland Health. Welcome back, Dr. Khan. Thank you very much, Steve. You know, we continue to worry about the stigma associated with mental health. From where you sit, is that still an issue? Absolutely. Stigma is a major issue that continues to pervade our society, our people, and our healthcare delivery systems in, and our school systems in many different ways. When people are diagnosed with mental health, how do you help them understand that they really are suffering from a disease, a disease that impacts the brain? Yeah, let me let me go back um, to you know thinking uh, and comparing it with medical illnesses, and I think that may help. You know, whenever we have a dysfunction or a problem with another organ, like you know liver or, or we have a broken bone, you know we tend to think in terms of those organs. So we say, oh, I have a liver problem, I have a broken forearm or something like that. When it comes to mental illness, you know we have this complicated organ called the brain. Even though we are aware of that this is an organ, we never think of it this way. When we are, for example, depressed, we are more likely to say, I am depressed, I feel weird, um, rather than ever say that my brain is suffering from depression. That's just not the way we talk. But what it does is it adds an identity into the whole equation. So you're no longer saying that my brain is dysfunctional or your arm is broken. You're saying I am broken, I have a problem. And that starts the whole kind of thing of stigma. And not only that, it's not just me saying about that. I mean, it's people saying about me. So others who observe me, if I'm depressed, they'll say, you know, he's kind of standoffish. They will never say that his brain is functioning in a way that he is becoming standoffish. So I think what happens is that when an identity of the whole human person gets focused on, the organ gets displaced in some ways. And, and you know, as we all know, stigma is born out of shame, guilt, or blame. Yes, at times we are responsible for what we do, but if our brain is not functioning well, we will not handle whatever is thrown at us. I'll give you another example. You know, if somebody has a problem of people with vision problems, you know, they can't see the blackboard if they sit in the back of the class. Um, they have a hard time reading a road sign. The same story is true with mental illness. In mental illness, if you're depressed, you have a hard time reading the positivity in whatever you're facing with. You have a hard time bouncing back 
uh, you have a hard time expressing yourself. What people may say and does not affect others may hurt you more. You're like the guy who has an injury on the shoulder, and if I brush against your shoulder, you're going to scream. So when you add those two things, you know that the brain is not functioning right. Its job is not happening right. It's not perceiving right. It's not responding right. And what is the response? That's a behavior. Um, and when it's added to the whole identity of me, rather than the organ, the stigma becomes compound. It's shame and it's guilt. And then it leads to either avoidance or reactivity or irritability or just plain going away from the society. I hope that that helps. Um, yeah, you know, it really does. And in your answer, you mentioned a child sitting in a classroom has a hard time seeing the blackboard and you begin to realize the signs Maybe we should get their vision checked. Let's think of childhood and mental illness. Mental illness can begin early in childhood. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. In fact, they say that often it's eight to 10 years that pass before a diagnosis is confirmed. And, and let's look at the statistics now. Most people with depression will be diagnosed, I'm, I'm, I'm going to emphasize, will be diagnosed around the time they're between their late teens or early adulthood. Uh, most people who will suffer from schizophrenia will be diagnosed around the age of 20 and 25. It also tells you that the prodrome, the technical word for the illness when it kind of is masquerading, but it's not very clinically apparent or seen, it has started 10 years ago. Most kids with depression will have early symptoms of depression in their early teens, in fact. And then there's other diseases such as ADHD, autism, things that are they actually belong to that younger age. So I would say that probably most of the psychiatric illnesses are basically pediatric illnesses. We know if you're a parent, what are some of the signs that parents should be looking for that may say, mm, you may need to have additional professional help? Well, um, you know, we can make it very simple. And, and the simple thing is, yes, you're absolutely right. Children have temperaments that are very different. However, Instead of getting too complicated, we can understand that a majority of kids will tend to do a certain thing. You know, every child will have some anxiety beginning school. Most children will have a lot of friends. Most children will perform reasonable and they will continue to pass in schools. Most children, when at home, will have games, they'll play, they'll interact with other children. You know, just make it very simple. Now, when you have a child who's consistently and persistently failing to do something, uh, then you should become alert. Instead of thinking they're irresponsible, let's think like the child with poor vision. You know, we have, when we, we, we're sending our kids to school, we go to the primary care doctor, the pediatrician, and we are required to get a clean bill of physical health so that they can play in, in, in their school, you know, like games. We need to get depression checked. We need to get anxiety checked. We need to get a trauma, a trauma screen or, or adverse childhood experience checked because children suffer from it. What the parents will typically observe is the child is 
more avoidant than the rest. The child gets more irritable than the rest. The child tends to have fluctuations of mood that are really not very easily explainable. The child tends to forget to do tasks on time. The child is staying behind the other kids in sports and school. The child deserves to be checked for those things. But when it's typically a child is failing at school or is behaving badly or is being reprimanded more, we tend to think he will grow out of it. So it's really important to look at those signs, telltale signs, irritability, uh, poor performance, inability to mix with other children, and inability to play with other children roughly on an average equally as the other children do. So let me ask you this. Sometimes in restaurants, when I see parents take electronic devices away from kids so they can eat together, the kid throws a temper tantrum. Is that a new dynamic that we're going to have to deal with? Well, uh, we are starting to see this problem much, much more, and especially after COVID. Also, if you look at it from this way, Things that are on iPads, they are just basically rewards. They're like, you know, you, you're looking at them and you're enjoying them. There's very little interaction you have to do other than, you know, flick your thumb on the screen. You, you're not involving in creativity. Number one. Number two, um, there's no training for delaying gratification. I want to emphasize this word, delay of gratification and frustration tolerance is an art that people have to learn. And, and you know, most times you'll see the kid is crying. And in the past, when these things were not available, the parents would turn and try to soothe the child, pay attention and do something which is natural and human, which is to get involved, to pay an emotional attention to the child. Nowadays, it's very easy. Flick out your phone, give it to the child, and shut them up. There's studies that show that the same reward centers as with other you know, drugs of, uh, of abuse, probably the, the same circuits are getting um, you know, targeted by these experiences. And when you stop them, it's like a withdrawal phenomena. It's like, you know, when you're taking somebody off of opiates and you see rage, anger, resentment, and these kids have very little frustration tolerance and very little ability to delay a gratification. So, you know, you just tell them, hey, you study first and then I'll let you have it. That's not running into their equations anymore. But I want to emphasize, it's not just the screen time that's detrimental. It's the absence or replacement of the human connection, soothing. You know, you know, parents, parents model for their children. So if the child is crying, crying, if they soothe him and they say, stay strong, don't cry. Let's deal with this thing. And they hold the child's hand who's trying to build a little tower of cubes and it's, it's constantly failing. And the ch- parent actually gets involved and does it for them and holds their hand. That's not happening. So, I mean, I'm not going to just blame that the screen is, is there and it's, it's just destroying the brain. It's the absence of that modeling, the soothing, the human emotional connection that really, really is the 
crux of human development. And this is Dr. Fuad Khan from Parkland Health. When we come back on the next segment, we're going to talk about how things like bipolar can slip up on teenagers. And before we go to break, please remember, it's that time of the year. Please get your flu shot. Covering the healthcare topics that matter most to North Texas. This is the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome back on this 9 11 special edition of the human side of healthcare. We're continuing our conversation now, talking about our kids with Dr. Fuad Khan, who is the Chief of Integrated Behavioral Health at Parkland Health. Steve? Thanks for staying with us, Dr. Khan, especially here on 9-11. I'm going to give you an example to help our listeners really comprehend this. I have a good friend. She is a business professional doing great in her job. And she told me that when she was in high school, she got straight A's. She went to a very prominent college. And at age 20, all of a sudden, her Grades in college dropped, her personality changed, and a professor took her to the infirmary and had her assessed, and she was diagnosed as bipolar. He recognized all the symptoms because his daughter was bipolar. She previously had no symptoms. Is that unusual? That is not an unusual story. Um, You know, there's a great saying, what the brain doesn't know, the eyes don't see. This gentleman, her, her professor, had known about bipolar illness, so his eyes were able to pick up that. Chances are this lady may have had early signs of bipolar illness, but they were kind of subdued. And I want to emphasize something. A lot of psychiatric illnesses tend to show their face close to young adulthood. There is a reason for that as well. You know, we are sheltered and supported by our parents, our homes, hopefully, until that age. At 17 and 18, uh, a flick of a switch happens, which says, you're responsible, you're going to get a career, you're going to get out into the world, we will be far away, here's your wings, go fly. That is the time of extreme burden on the developing mind, the abstract mind, the cognitive mind, the executive mind. All of these will have to pull all what they have to perform. Now, a person who unfortunately has been afflicted with a genetically loaded or whatever reason illness or a trauma-based illness where they're either bipolar or depressed or they have a chance of psychosis, that's the time when the brain, it's, it's exactly like, you know, I'll give you an example. If a child has suffered a major injury, I'm, I'm talking of trauma, or a child who's born with a short leg. So the child who had an accident and broke his leg in many places, you know, he may get healed and the surgery may do well. But when you get them to run or when a dog chases them or when they have to perform in school in soccer, Everybody can pick out the guy's falling behind. He doesn't run right. The same story is with mental illness. Many times you see mental illness not even showing until this age where all the demands are coming, emotional, cognitive, executive thinking, planning, 
developing their future and career. And you start to see that person faltering. And that's when people start picking it up. So many times this, you know, lady, if she had some signs and symptoms at age 14, her brain was still not under the stress of all the demands that at age 21 she's facing. You know, it is amazing when you think in terms of mental illness, the stigma associated with it. I've heard from child and adolescent psychiatrists that teen suicide is almost at epidemic proportions. Would you agree with that? Yes, um, it has risen and if, uh, it has become a very strong leading cause of teenage death, especially it's rising in the in the teenagers at a rate that we've not seen before. And I, I honestly think it goes back a little bit, not to just uh, that, you know, the illness has increased. If you look at it, the world has changed. And the same stress I talked about, you know, at age 18 or 20 has actually come down. We're also seeing other things. We are allowing children to choose their genders or their identities or whatever at very early age and makes important decisions about those aspects of their lives. And then when something goes wrong, we blame them. Um, And we say, you know, you made that decision. We're loading our children way too early. Dr. Khan, in that last answer, you mentioned connection and that we are not getting the connection that we used to. And I'm wondering if we are afraid to connect now. You've asked a very philosoph- a deep philosophical question here. You know, um, I, I kind of think of it this way. So, you know, there's a I, I, when I walk in the grocery stores, I now see a whole lot of like young teenagers, two of them walking around with a two-year-old child in it. And I'm like, God, they're not even out of their childhood and they have a child. Um, and, and a child is almost always playing with an iPhone. And I can see uh, that, you know, I I see often these things from the corner of my eyes that, you know, the child starts to have a little temper tantrum or something like that. And I see the parents getting very frustrated and very irritated. They have a child today that they're still themselves not really where they should be in terms of uh, deep thought calmness, you know, resilience and patience and all of those things. What's going to happen to this child now? This child will grow up with inadequate parenting. We'll have a flurry of these things happening over a period of time. I see that things have gone in that direction in one way. Now, again, these are my opinions. I want to be very, very clear about it. There's another thing I see often. We, we have a little joke. We say we are the sandwich generation. We listened to our parents and obeyed them and sought their approval. And we are also now afraid of our own children, obey them and seek their approval. And, and the tables have turned that way. And, and we are very afraid to discipline our children for fear of being labeled as harsh or something like that. It's, it's, a, it's a phenomena that has swung around like a pendulum that in the past you could do anything to your child and nobody could question you. And now you cannot do anything to your child without fear of being questioned. Same thing for, for schools. And teachers are afraid of responding and Teachers are afraid of disciplining. So we have a generation that's coming up without learning the art of controlling their own emotion and stuff like that. So, so I see this phenomena happening and you see that you are, you're absolutely right. It's, 
Probably we are afraid, but also probably we don't even know how to connect. We have not been taught. We have poor frustration tolerance now. Everybody wants to have everything. Uh, and if we say, no, you can't have everything, people see us as obstructionists to their dream, to their happiness. The, the culture you know, of shifting towards everybody gets a trophy has created that kind of an artificial situation and everybody gets that trophy until age 18. And then there's one job and not everybody's gonna get that job. There's going to be those constraints that will be suddenly shifted. And I can see how it's affecting the humanity and the, and the people in such a way that they're, they're feeling very left out, alone and, and directionless. Now, it may be, uh, you know, an artifact of how I see it, because I tend to see a skewed population more um, and make my opinions on that. Amen, Thomas. Amen. Amen. I couldn't agree with you more, Dr. Khan. I used to coach Little League, and the team moms would get furious when I said everybody doesn't deserve a trophy, and we ended up giving everybody a trophy. I couldn't agree more with you, Dr. Khan. You're so right. Oh, and we're out of time, too, Steve. We're going to have to wrap this up. Dr. Fuad Khan, Parkland Health, thank you for your comments. Steve, it's been a special day. You know, 21 years ago, we had almost 3,000 people die in the tragedy at 9-11. And as we never forget that, let us also remember, in our fight against COVID-19, over 1 million of our fellow Americans have lost their lives. And that's why we wanted this show to focus on stress, anxiety, concern, and hopefully we've given some nuggets of information to help people deal with the stress that they're feeling today. Now, as we look to next week, we're going to talk to legendary Texas Ranger baseball announcer, Eric Nadell, as he talks about a retina tear that he experienced not long ago while announcing a baseball game. So please join us next week on the Human Side of Healthcare.